All right. Welcome back to Conspiranormal, everybody. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, Surfiel is uh, getting situated in Seattle at the moment, but I have with me, Hi. you know, sitting in Nevaeh. Hi, I'm I'm the um, replacement for the time being. Yeah, for this episode <laughs> at least, right? <laughs> yeah, I would never replace Surfiel. Yeah, nobody can replace him for you. I know he was worried about that possibility, but uh, that's that that's not going to happen. But no, when uh, he comes back, everyone better give him as much love and attention as he deserves. That's right. That's right. That's right. And we will, uh, of course, Nevaeh from Nevaeh's Nightmare. We talked about that a couple of uh, had a little bonus episode with her. But uh, we have our guest here with us tonight, uh, Becky Ann Galantine. And I'm really excited to be speaking to her. Becky Ann is a paranormal investigator, and she is also a mortician, which is something that um, Nevea is also interested in. Yeah, so school for exactly. So, Becky Ann, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, I really appreciate you. Really appreciate you being here. Um, I, as I was telling you uh, in the part that no one will hear we were talking about that. I, I, I first saw you in a documentary about the Amityville horror and I can't exactly remember it. It was something on Tubi. <laughs> and I think that I just like ran across it and thought it was a pretty interesting from what I remember and pretty fair documentary. But uh, that's the one that, uh, that I first, that I first saw you on and I followed you on Instagram, TikTok and all that but um if you can kind of just like in, in you know talk a little bit about who you are and kind of like introduce yourself a little bit sure so i moved to connecticut at the beginning of the pandemic and i started serving my mortician apprenticeship so i was working at a place where i was becoming a licensed embalmer it was crazy busy crazy long hours and i only had two days off um every single week and those are the days that i used to start looking at haunted locations because I couldn't make friends and I couldn't talk to people and I couldn't go do recreational activities. So I always had an interest in this. I've been documenting things for a very long time, but this is when it became like a social media thing and people started to notice me. And so I would go to work and then on my two days off, I lived like a double life where I was investigating, finding new locations and also researching really unusual graves and burials and just kind of like, the customs that have changed over the years and the way funeral, the funeral practice has changed and um, how that has kind of changed in the paranormal or how it may manifest differently in the paranormal because we memorialize people differently. That being said, uh, it got to the point where the paranormal consumed everything that I was doing and I was calling off to do documentaries. So I actually had to call off work to film famously haunted Amityville. And that's, I actually ended up leaving my job last January because it was just, I, I was living two different lives and it was not working out. Um, so Famously Haunted Amityville was a revisit at, of the Amityville case, something that I had been interested in because when I grew up, I saw the remake and my parents said, you know, that movie's a remake. Why do you want to go to the theaters and see that? And I had no idea. So that whole documentary just kind of, that whole documentary just kind of examined how people have maintained an interest in that case and how it's kind of like a generational thing. So paranormal discussions and debates aside, I think that that case has held an interest for so long because 
people are just kind of like feeling this connection and it's spans so much time and they're still talking about it that why would we stop talking about it now? You know? So that's kind of how I got to where I was. And that was the first production I had actually done. So it's been a journey. (laughs) Yeah. It's been a really wild, wild journey. Um, Some days I'm like, I don't know how this is my life or how I ended up here because I had the job, like I had the career job and I was very, focused on that and being the person in the suit. And now I'm like, I get to talk about the things I like, and it still kind of ties into my jobs in some way, but it, it's still, it's like, I just feel like I came to be where I'm supposed to be. And it's pretty interesting. That's very, very interesting. It's always good when you can do something that you, that you love to do. Um, Is there like, as far as you getting into the paranormal, how, how did you get into it? Were there any like personal experiences that you had growing up that kind of like catapulted you into um, wanting to study the paranormal? So I laugh when I tell people this because I literally grew up in an antique shop. So my entire childhood was spent like sorting through the recently deceased belongings in their house. So it's always going to be like this old house with all of these things kind of like just laid out and it really gets you thinking well this is what happens like some antique dealer is going to go through our stuff someday and divvy it out and decide what's valuable and what's not and to me the things that I felt were valuable even as a kid were like the greeting cards and really personal things I don't have any specific paranormal experiences from that age but that's what made me start thinking about death and walking among death and especially that blur between life and death when it comes to someone just passed away who lived in that home. So when I started going to college, I was actually studying research science. Um, It was on the pre-veterinary track. At this point, I was taking chemistry, biology. I was doing actual like legitimate experiments in the, the like very controlled lab setting, which unfortunately in the paranormal, we are never afforded anything like that. So everything was very like, straight in this box and this is how we have to keep it until I decided to go ghost hunting for the first time with my brother and my boyfriend at the time so I was literally just a kid I had no idea I didn't know there was equipment I didn't know there was a community I had no motive I don't even know what made me feel like I wanted to do this but when you don't know anything about the paranormal, you look for ghosts in cemeteries because where else are you going to find ghosts? It's like, oh yeah, duh, like ghosts in the graveyard. So I said, let's go um, and it'll be a fun thing to do and we'll see if there's really ghosts or not. That was the great grand idea that we had. So we walk a mile and I don't know if it's because we put so much like energy into this mile and so much anticipation and build up that when we arrived at the cemetery, we walked around and we were like, is there any ghost? Is there anyone here? Like pointing a flashlight, a flip phone and a little point and shoot camera around trying to figure things out and nothing happened. And it, I think about 15 minutes had passed, which is no time compared to how much time I spend doing this now. But at that, sure. at that, at that moment, I was like, "That there's nothing. Let's go home. This was a silly idea. Turn off the flashlight. We turned off the cell phone. We turned off the camera. We called my mom to come pick us up. 
And when we turned everything off, I caught out of the corner of my eye this like blue sphere. It was like bright aqua colored and it moved so wispily, almost like a cotton candy, but it was light, but it didn't shine on a surface. It was free moving light. And I thought about this a lot. I thought about if it could be I thought about if it could be ball lightning or something like that. So keep that in mind as I tell the story that I have reassessed what happened. But it stopped in the tree, in between two trees. And I said, did you guys just see that? And my brother said, Becky, like, you're messing with us. Like, stop. It's not funny. You're you're being ridiculous. And in that moment, about 15 seconds had passed and it changed direction. So a complete right angle of whatever this was and it came floating and it was like if all the air around us had stopped and nothing was moving except this blue ball of light and it came in between my boyfriend and I we jumped in opposite directions the validation of him jumping in the op- opposite direction allows me to not look back at that and say that didn't actually happen so when this happened i was like i know something nobody else knows i experienced something that cannot be explained Went to, I went to school the next day. I told my biology teacher, he was like, ghosts aren't real. I went to the paranormal society of my college. They had like mm. a little paranormal society. And I was like, what is this? And they're like, oh, that's an orb, which, you know, you think of orbs as the specs and photographs and, you know, not evidence that we talk about. But she was like, oh, it's an orb. That is what she told me because, you know, those kind of you know, just like the, um, what the categories that things fall into and always trying to like give something a title or name, but I've decided it doesn't need to be anything. And after that, I started skipping class and I was showing up to school, like in sweatpants with like a Red Bull and unslept, unbrushed hair, because I would spend every single night that I could out ghost hunting at random locations, um, abandoned coal mines, places of mine disasters. Um, There's a place called Livermore that's supposed to be a move cemetery that had a train wreck beside it. We were doing whatever we could to experience that again. And unfortunately, it never happened again like that. And that's how I just kind of sparked that interest. And, And that is the one experience that I'll say that I just hold it closely. Anytime I get frustrated, I'm like, there are things out there that I can explain. And I've looked into ball lightning. I've looked into it. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if it could change direction, but even if it were disproven today, I wouldn't regret the fact that it led me down this path. Yeah, sure. And I mean, uh, you know, Sir is my co-host. He had a, he had an experience with something that was like, that was ball lightning. He's pretty sure of it. And he told me that it's still like was really strange i mean ball lightning in itself even though it's an explainable phenomenon it's still something people don't see all the time and it's still really weird yeah yep absolutely and um i think that's why you know it's like i wouldn't regret it if if my first experience that i hold closely was told like hey it's not real it's still like you said it's strange we don't see it every day i don't know very many people who've seen ball lightning as it is right yeah i mean I I know now two people in my entire life that have seen ball lightning, right? <laughs> you know, so yeah, it's it's not it's not a very like it's it's not a very common phenomenon apparently. And through this whole process of uh, in, investigating, have you had any other like kind of weirder experiences? So I think it's a, been a journey, and I had 
another accidental weird experience before I was into really investigating. So I divide my years up as ghost hunting years. And those were definitely the ghost hunting years. Those were not investigating years. It was just like stabbing in the dark with no deliberation of what I was trying to do. I was just trying to see a ghost. And then um, something happened at my apartment where I was sleeping and something had come into the room and it actually flung the door open. It was a full shadow but it smelled like mothballs. And that's what I remember so vividly. It stunk, whatever it was, it stunk. And the doors were locked. And I tried to wake up my partner, but I had sleep paralysis. And again, here comes the validation. It entered my roommate's room. And so I was like, oh, my roommate came in in the middle of the night and tried to use the bathroom, but couldn't go. And he didn't want to wake us up. But the next morning, Rich was like, no, something came in my room last night and touched my leg and then floated backwards down the stairs and never left the house. And we're like, you know, that really perplexed us. And I thought intruder for the first couple of days and then I pondered on it some more and I'm like, no, I'm not going to tell myself, I'm not going to gaslight myself into thinking that that was an intruder because the doors were locked and they did not open and they were still locked and nothing ever left the house. It just kind of faded away. And he said the same thing. It's not like the horrible vomit smell. So that made me think like, okay, there's not just an existence of things we can't explain, but entities out there. But as I started getting into investigating more heavily, the things that I can explain are more emotional. They're things that come out of not just a piece of evidence, but a collection of evidence that have, you know, kind of built together and become something that's more of an investigation. And every single time, I feel like I don't know if it's because I'm new. Like, I know I've been interested in this for, you know, a decade now, but I don't know if it's because I'm new, but I feel like I get like, the rug pulled out from underneath me every time I do an investigation. I feel like I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly like being told, you know, you whatever you believe before you walk in this door is about to alter a little bit each time. I'm like, when do I stop like learning and experiencing things on, on a different level than I expected? Yeah. And, and, and hopefully, you know, you, you never will like it should keep going and and you keep experiencing keep experiencing these these things i understand the frustration though the frustration of what am i walking into this time what unknown am i going to figure out by the end of this yeah yeah well it's it's more so like you know you go and you think well we had an investigation we did for a documentary we were doing recently and we're like this story didn't actually happen. So most of the time people are like, oh, well, this never happened. We found proof that this was an urban legend or whatever. It's not worth investigating. But what we found is like, there's still something to investigate there. Like things like that, like little lessons or, you know, I I thought I'll never allow myself to be vulnerable because that's what we're told. Like, don't be vulnerable on investigations or whatever. And Mm -hmm. it makes you susceptible or or something like that. And then I find myself crying on investigations. And I'm like, this is fine. I'm comfortable with crying in this instance. If I didn't cry in this instance, I think that I wouldn't be the person that I have told everyone that I am. And I wouldn't have the empathy that I, 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 it's real to me, you know? And um, there have been times where I'm like, I can't have a negative experience on an investigation. And sometimes things just go in that direction. So that's what I mean. You know, I love learning. Um, I grew up 
go like I was put in this gifted program so we were always like given these weird puzzles and things like that and I feel like it's just like this never-ending puzzle and I love that but um it has become less about like trying to see a ghost and more of this like bigger picture thing and it means a lot more to me it's a lot closer and personal now yeah I think there's a little bit of the spiritual journey in there sounds like yeah definitely and you said you got kind of started by living in kind of like this in a in a house like kind of like a like an antique store kind of environment so was there kind of this like empathy for the people that had like come and gone and um, their things and that and the interest in that. I think I, I will say that when I grew up, I probably was not very kind and I don't know the empathy is something I learned with the age or something. Um, mm-hmm. I think that I just didn't understand how to empathize, but it did create this ap- appreciation of things that are normally discarded. And so like my mom would always say, Becky, you need to let me make your Halloween costumes and let's not buy the the new ones. And for me, I was like, why not? Like, why do I have to wear it? And now I'm like, oh, I get what she meant now. And same with the antiques. Like, you know, why are we going to big box stores and buying things that cost the same as a solid mahogany piece of Victorian furniture? So that's where the appreciation of the history comes from, I'd say. Um, The empathy just comes from life, living, um, going through great losses myself, sitting with a grieving family family as you're working as a mortician, and thinking about how they feel and then entering a field where you're allegedly talking to, well, I guess potentially talking to someone's lost loved one, even if they came many years before, you have to think like if that family were sitting in the room watching what I'm doing, would that be respectful of this person's memory? And I think the mem- that empathy comes from there and it comes from, you know, losing friends in unconventional ways and ways that people might judge dealing with disenfranchised grief. And I think that over time you just, you live and you realize you can't judge anyone in the living world and you can't ever have expectations for what you're going to get out of an investigation or any entity that you encounter. But yeah, I, that that's it. It's just, now I'm always, I feel like I'm obsessing about it and thinking about it from every perspective. And some, sometimes I'm up late so night, like so late at night thinking about things from these angles. I'm like, why am I empathizing with this? This is a horrible situation um, where someone has done something really wrong, you know? Do you find um, through this, this, this journey that you're on that you've, I mean, that you have more of an appreciation of history and the people that have come before? Have you always been um, kind of a lover of history? I think when I grew up, I went through the phases of history that almost everyone goes through where you're like Titanic phase, Woodstock phase, Egypt phase, like those like beacon phases. But I don't think I really saw it the way that I see now where I'm like, this is someone, someone, this is an, this is a person. And I think the way history is prescribed in the United States, especially when we start talking about things like the Civil War and the great losses that people had gone through. First off, you could not get me to sit down and listen to the Civil War conversations 
five years ago. I was like, I, I don't understand. Mm. I, I didn't get it. And now I do because those were people. And those were a lot of people yeah. that were lost. And a lot of people that had to walk through with everyone lost around them, knowing that they were likely next. And this is where everything kind of comes into place. And I'm like, do I love history? Was I ever like a history buff kind of person? No. But now I'm like, I love the people. I love their stories. And I don't know if that's the same as like, like the biographical data of history. And um, I love thinking about things. And now it's like I go to a place like the Farnsworth House in Gettysburg. And I'm not just thinking, wow, there were people here that were soldiers standing here. I'm like, what was it like to stand at the bottom of the steps, heading to the top of the steps, knowing you were going to be the next person in the sniper position, knowing that you were likely going to be shot out of that spot next and thrown onto the pile of bodies that's standing is sitting next to this building and like having that consciousness that's horrible and then we're being told what fourth or fifth grade when they start introducing the civil war to us and we're being told like oh yes great numbers like you're you're just given like this numeric data you're not given this human story side of it and those are things that I love about history, not, you know, I don't love the tragedy, but I love sure. just like knowing what someone had gone through, how resilient and awesome humans have been over the years and how, if we had to go through that today, how traumatic that would be. Yeah. And the fact that right. life just kind of moved on in that era. Yeah. I mean, I've been to Gettysburg. Uh, most recent was about six years ago. And I mean, it was the first time that I really spent, I spent like two or three days there. Yeah. And because I really just like, that is a place that you just want to just, you would just want to let it sink into you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure yeah. that you can, you, you can understand this, that like you, when you go there, I think for me, you know, growing up in the South, I mean, I was always exposed to the civil war, especially in the town that I grew up in because it was a civil war battle site itself but that place there is just something about it that is just like really palpable when you go and you stand in that field where pickett's charge was and just walk those grounds i mean it's you can just feel it in the air and no wonder people have all kinds of experiences there and i think that's just one example of a place that is where you can really feel it yep Yep. I always say um, when I start discussing this stuff or when I started like putting my ideas to paper, it was at first hard for me to comprehend the discussion of like the hauntings when it comes to these locations. And then when I start looking at it on a deeper level that we're not haunted by the bodies, it's not just the bodies that were there or like the vessels of the human body that had laid there. It was like the fear, the sitting there not knowing no. the unable to move i just uh, even thinking about it i feel like i get you know i'm sure you're getting emotional too where it's like i i can't imagine going through that and as you said this is just one example i feel like we're exposed to this pretty heavily and we go into discourse about whether or not you know paranormal is always followed by or, or preceded by tragedy at a location or if it's just a place people mm -hmm. really liked and i also equally enjoy those investigations but some of the places we go it's like whew, like i i just can't yeah. i can't there's no way for me to even empathize with that i can't even pretend to because it's shocking 
Yeah, a place like something like I guess like the Lizzie Borden House or someplace like that. I mean, that's that is just infamous and has uh, so much of a st- uh, kind of a stigma attached to it, and so many people go in there and and pour their energies into it. Like you can probably like feel that as well, you know, just the people's like love or dislike for a place too. Oh, yeah, that's definitely a good point. I also talk about how, you know, what if when we're investigating these like battlefield locations mm-hmm. and historic locations, this history has been popularized for how many years? 70 years now, you know, 80 years. When did they start doing these reenactments? And it's like, what if yeah. we're talking to a reenactor who really loved it and always showed <laughs> up in like full attire? Like we literally never know anything. And it's like, you could drive yourself like so mad just thinking about all the options. And I was, I was telling this to a friend recently when we were on an investigation. He's like, so you're saying that maybe we're not even talking to this person. We're talking to this person that put their heart and soul into this character that they played every single day to tourists or whatever, or the guy that was a huge buff and dressed up every day because these places are so far removed from what had happened that there's so much room for contamination of other people going and putting their impression there. Yeah, that's a good point. I've, I've, you know what? I've never thought about that. We usually take it for granted that it might be the people from the time that we're supposedly talking about, but it could be, yeah, like the this guy that really loved being the Confederate <laughs> reenactor, and he just wanted to come back, and he's not actually a soldier, and 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 I think too, there's another there's another possibility. I think you were kind of alluding to this to one of this investigation that you were saying that wasn't a real event, like kind of the effect of like a like a tulpa kind of effect where mm-hmm. people people really pour their energy into a place and like if they believe it's real it can eventually manifest itself as being real so like a place like gettysburg where just like people come and they feel that emotion and they have those emotions well you've had 100 over 150 years of people doing that eventually you know you're going to also there's a lot there that's like etched on that landscape yeah Definitely. And yeah, that's what uh, the investigation was actually at this ghost town. And Mm -hmm. there was allegedly, you've heard the story, I'm sure, of the hunter who gets shot and they turn him over and he's got a smile on his face. And I'm like, this literally never happened. There's no way that would even be documented in, in any way. But then we start getting these things like, he shot me and this, but it did not communicate uh-huh. in a straightforward like conversation. It was like this, you know, just echo of a being. And I'm like, oh, all these kids coming for all these years and, you know, putting that into that location, yeah. especially in, in a place that's a forest with the trees and everything. I just feel like that all of that is stored there going and trying to get scared in the middle of the night and staying up all night, you know. Um, camping out at this ghost town, I Absolutely. think would feed whatever that is. And there were multiple legends associated with that place that never happened. And it's still, I, and so that's where I'm like, okay, so we're going to go in and we're not going to experience anything because these stories aren't true. And that's not the case. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the Philip experiment. Um, what is it? The Philip experiment. No, I'm actually not. Well, the Philip experiment was this like experiment that was done. At, at a college i don't remember which one but the students were assigned to 
to create a ghost. And they gave him the name Philip and they came up with this whole background around him. And then uh, all of a sudden they started like stuff started happening, like paranormal things like poltergeist stuff started happening and they started getting communications from Philip. And he would say they, I I think they might've even done like a Ouija board experiment where Philip talked to them on the Ouija board and they all knew that Philip was made up, but all of a sudden Philip was communicating with them. So like their collective energy and that created this, whatever it was. Yeah. I feel like I have read that and not yeah. heard the name. I didn't know it had a, an official title associated with it, but it, it's just funny because you see things like that. Even recently in the news, I'm sure you've seen the Brazilian article about the you know teenagers who were playing with the Ouija board and they all get get hospitalized with anxiety and it's like something like that like they're all collectively you know probably saw one person dealing with it and yeah. they're like I must be dealing with that too and it, it is whatever this is and it, it is interesting when things like that happen and for me I think there's a lot of investigators that are like oh well it's just like a projection of the human mind it's a manifestation of our mind and and it's not actually dead people that we're talking to. And I'm like, I'm still just as interested in that as I would be if it were deceased human beings. Yeah, Let's talk a little bit about Amityville. You know, it's something that's always interested me. And I mean, that's one of the best known, really best known cases. And there's really no reason to rehash it. I mean, I think I've, I've talked about it on the show maybe a couple of times. But um, was there anything when you did that first documentary about it? Um, was there anything that you found out that you maybe didn't know or anything that was like really uh, surprising to you? Or was there anything that kind of enhanced what you already knew? The only thing that I can conclude from anything that I pulled from that or any of the research I've done is that you genuinely just don't know unless you were there, unless you were like on site investigating with those people so we didn't sit here and argue and speculate on everything now um you know i could sit there and say my personal feelings about everyone who was involved or how the case was conducted but at the end of the day i feel like no matter what i say about it it doesn't matter because i wasn't there um that being said looking into it really peeling back the layers and looking at all of the details of it there was nothing really that has surprised me other than you know finding out later on like the Lutzes may have actually had some occult involvement and that is interesting to me and that he may have actually sought out that location intentionally. Other than that, um, I think, I think things like this happen, especially with the murder, that part of it, I'm less interested in. I think it's almost completely unrelated to the paranormal as far as like mm -hmm. what allegedly happened with that. I think it is just one of those things where something happens to someone and, and, you know, I'm actually going through something where I know someone that did something similar. And I'm like, it just happens. It can't be explained. And there's a reason, um, you know, our minds aren't going to allow ourselves to explain something so horrific. So we're going to constantly wonder and ponder every possible avenue. And I guess maybe the paranormal was the most comforting one for the murders because it's just unfathom unfathomably horrible. You you said that you investigated the house as well. 
No. So nobody's allowed to investigate the house. So that's the other thing. So I just kind of did the, as much research as you're able, I've been to the property, they have not opened it for investigations. So that's why I'm saying like, no matter what, anything that we can speculate from the outside until maybe someday the house is reopened, it is just kind of like rediscussing, putting these facts down and looking at them, but it, it can only be speculated. It's almost frustrating because it it was, you know, it'd be kind of nice if someone could just go in there and like do a little sweep. But um, I I just think while looking into it, it's like, I can't even imagine what it would be like to go into that house when they investigated. And, you know, same with like the the picture of the little kid. I know a lot of Mm -hmm. people come at me and say, that's been debunked. And it's like, has it really? Or it's like one source said something. It's always like he said, she said, like you could work your entire life on something and then you die and someone could say they made it up the whole time and everyone would be like, oh yeah, they did because you just told me they did and just like go with it. So I just think it's difficult to say um, definitively anything about it. It was just, it was just a weird time in my life where I went to sightsee the location and then I got called back for another project with Travel Channel to talk about their documentary and then a few months later, I get called back to do this famously haunted documentary. I'm like, I cannot escape Amityville. I feel like people keep trying to bring me back here. <laughs> so um, if I ever get asked to do anything there again, I'm like, I can't believe it. it was like a three month span. I just kept having to travel back to that location. Yeah, it kept it kept drawing you back. Uh, the picture of the little boy, to my knowledge, I. <laughs> Have, has someone said that they've debunked it? Because to my knowledge, it's never been definitively proven that it is right. fake. So that's the thing. That's what I know is that it hasn't right. been proven fake. However, right. when you are actively involved in social media and you post something and it gets like yeah. so many views, people will say, that's been debunked. That was a reporter. That's been debunked. It was this person and they manipulated it this way, all these experts. And so that's what I mean as far as that goes. Um, I personally, to my knowledge, if someone asked me and I took a polygraph, I would say, no, I do not think that photo has been debunked, but I can't explain it. And unfortunately, I wasn't there when the evidence was collected. And there's not really like a document in in the way it was presented you know what i mean like it wasn't like oh this is the exact camera we used at at this angle the way we do things today where we can replicate the devices and everything because you know i've done a lot of professional photography work so you can dissect and peel things back that way and Mm -hmm. you know the discussion of whether or not is it infrared now we all know the camera models and um think anomalies like that are so less frequent so you know there's always going to be those questions that we'll never have the answers to i mean i remember asking uh, talking to john zaffis about it and he told me that people even tried to say that that was him (laughs) and he said that, that he said that you know look i was way too old to have been that child because i think he was already in his 20s by the time that that picture was even taken I think it was in like 75. And yeah, I I've definitely never heard that theory, but yeah, that's yeah, really had, funny. <laughs> yeah, somebody had said that to him and said like like or, or said that and he and he had to like say, well, no, that 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 wasn't. And I mean, I have like plenty of problems with the Warrens and plenty of issues with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as that picture, you know, the thing is is that 
well, they said, well, like, hey, well, like, it maybe, maybe it was a little kid that got in the house, um, and he just snuck in and he looked in the wind, he looked through the door, but you know, it's been over forty years, over forty five years at this point, and no one has come forward and said, hey, that's me, and as much as that picture has been circulated and put in documentaries as much as people have seen it. I've just no, you think you just would think that somebody would have come forward by now that lived in the neighborhood. I don't um, know about the photo you're talking about. Okay. So there's a photo. All right. All right. So um, when the Warrens went into the Amityville house okay. to investigate okay. it, um, they were taking pictures in the upstairs um, area. And there's a picture of a little boy, his head peeking from behind the door frame. And it kind of looks like he's either wearing glasses or he's got like, or his eyes are like glowing. I think it's just a, oh, okay. a of the, of the result now. of the flash. Yeah. And it's a really weird picture. It's, it's kind of creepy. Like I said, no one's ever come forward about it, but, but one of the theories is that, you know they've done like the the um the defeo children mm-hmm. um that were killed they've like you know this this is one of the defeo kids and they really put a picture of him by the picture of this and they say well that's him People i don't just know trying to connect dots yeah they don't have answers to right so mm-hmm. there, there there's there's no telling it is a gen i think it's a genuinely mysterious picture but whether it's a ghost or not i don't know but it is definitely a really, I mean, Becky Ann, you'd agree. It's a really weird picture. Like it's really <laughs> yeah, disturbing. And, yeah. Right. And, and the way that it just like the eyes reflect are really unusual. The other thing I want to say is, okay, imagine yourself on an investigation. Like you were so quiet. Like, I don't know what kind of friends they had, you know, when they're investigating, but when I'm investigating with my friends, we are quiet. And if yeah. you hear, you can hear the paint chip fall from the ceiling and we're like what's that and we're like oh that was a paint chip so the fact that someone is considering that a little kid would sneak in and go unnoticed until they took the photo and it wasn't noticed while they were taking the photo that i just don't think that that's possible i think it's more plausible that they knew exactly what they were doing and fabricated it rather than someone snuck in and and got in the picture yeah, the whole that's... concept of someone sneaking in is just like no, that doesn't make it doesn't add up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's one of those. It, I think it's a genuinely mysterious picture. Whether it's a ghost or not, I don't know. But I just looked at it to <laughs> yeah. refresh yeah. my memory, and I yeah, forgot how genuinely creepy it is. <laughs> it, it's one of the best, I think. Well, I don't know, quote unquote, ghost pictures, and just the history of the house and everything i've seen this photo like a hundred times i just forgot yeah, where it was from yeah. it creeps me out though i don't like it one of the things about amityville and i won't talk too much more about it but like one of the things about amityville is that what i think basically happened there was i think that they did have a real a real haunting situation and probably even to the point where it really was kind of more of a violent haunting but and then they did leave the house probably because of it, but I don't think it was anywhere near as extreme as what's in that book. I think a lot of the book is fiction and they probably did get together with that, um, 
lawyer for Butch DeFeo and based on that haunting kind of came up with a defense for him. I mean, I think there's like an in-between, um, there's an in-between explanation there, but I do think that they might've experienced some real things. And like you said, um, George Lutz, I know he was into the transcendental meditation stuff and the possibility that they might have chosen it because there was a murder there um, is also pretty interesting. Yeah. And the other thing that I'll say is I'm no stranger, you know, in the past few years, I've had a few stories picked up by the media and I'm no stranger to presenting something very factually and not sensationalized and having an article published later that is completely different than the information that I provided. And I'm like, the real story is more compelling. Why did they publish this? So I could see how that could get carried away as well. The other thing that was compelling for me about their situation is that they said, Hey, our house is haunted. And they actually withdrew from the media for a little bit. So they didn't immediately say, how can we turn this into as much money as possible? They, they took a step back. So, um, and you'd think if someone were really just trying to ride it out, they would have just, you know, went with it and spoke to the media as much as possible. And, um, like I said, you know, I told, over the summer, a media outlet about my house and how I had a hair wreath that I had activity with, but most of the things in my house are not haunted despite being antique. There are only one or two items that something has been associated with. And an article comes out that says, woman claims nobody will come to her home due to her ghost flatmate. And I'm like, what is this? I'm like, I'm embarrassed. I'm not even going to share this, but um, that's just how things get carried away when they're authored. Yeah. Media sensationalism. Yeah. Yeah. Type of thing. <clears throat> it's a, it's unfortunate, but it's something that we have to deal with. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and there was a ton of media sensationalism with the Amityville mm-hmm. case. Uh, I think just because of the murders I and mean, that was so well known. And then the Lutzes come in and experience what they experience, which, which like I said, I think they experienced something real. It, it's, it's one of those things that like so many things, so much gets confused. Like I think in like the UFO circles, you could say like Roswell or like Rendlesham forest. It's kind of the same thing where it's just, it's just a big, it becomes just a big cluster eventually. And there's no, there's no real telling now of what the truth is really going to be. Yeah. Something like that. Yep. I agree with you. Nevaeh, were there any questions that you wanted to ask? Oh, um, okay. I you were talking about how you only have like one or two haunted items in your house, and I may or may not have been scrolling through your TikTok earlier, and um, I saw that you had purchased a. It was like these two sisters, and it was like a painting, but it was on a metal sheet. I believe you said, yeah. And you had like put it in your boyfriend's room because like you didn't have any more room to put it or something along the lines. And you said there you, there was going to be an update and there wasn't any update. And I was curious just as to how you came about that and how you ended up with an Ouija board coming along with the painting. This is really funny. I've been having these really strange marketplace pickups. Like I just had another one today and the stories are unbelievable, but there has been no update with that. He liked the picture of the girls and it was just kind of like, okay, you bought another picture of people. Nothing happened after that. 
the last ones, yes, that that was when the closet essentially got eviscerated when we brought home those twins. But okay. the the little girls, it, it was interesting. They they're a method of photography it's like a medium it's called sculptograph and it was only made by this one photo studio in new york city for like a year or two in the 1890s so it's it's a really unusual style and um a lot of people are like oh it's it's a tintype but it's not it's um chalk pastel on that the ouija board came from the same attic and it just says you know to whatever his name is i think brian from grandma and it says it's fun with any age but it's an unused Ouija board. Um, I thought it was interesting that they came with one and that adds to the story, but there's been no activity or any indication that they're haunted. They just look interesting. Um, so it, it it's just funny. I always buy things and it's not for value. It's always like the story associated with it or if there's something interesting going on. Um, so I didn't really update because there wasn't much of a reaction. He's kind of used to it. The main thing is those videos they're genuine. He is like, we have no space for any more pictures of these people, but I can't help it. When I see people for like 10 or $15, I feel bad because that's someone's memory and it's probably the only existing photo of them. So they end up coming home with me. Yeah. Um. I also noticed that you, even on your TikTok, you're constantly places, you're constantly doing some sort of investigation. And I've noticed that a few of them aren't like big like they're not like super duper like planned out like going through a bunch of people and stuff is that just like what you do in your free time like for comfort almost um I feel like I'm a busybody, and I feel like I constantly have to be doing stuff even the past week or so I've been taking some time to grieve and like just assess things and I still feel like I should be out doing stuff it's kind of because I don't have a full-time job it's kind of how it it's become my lifestyle my job right now so a lot of things will be collaborations with other people even though I post that I'm by myself or like you only see Mm -hmm. me by myself so like when I went to Eureka Springs and got to stay at the Crescent that was sponsored by the Crescent and I met up with Kalani who actually like kind of put that together and then we did um, the Basin Park Hotel And so I'm out in Eureka Springs. It looks like I'm traveling, but the way I'm traveling is very frugal. Um, And yeah, it is kind of like haphazard. I'm not a book a flight, book a hotel and plan everything out kind of person. I'll have someone call me and say, hey, I have a haunted house in Savannah, Georgia. Can you be here next week? And I'm like, I'm in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. How am I going to be in Savannah, Georgia and do a thorough investigation? So that's usually it's kind of like you have to say yes when it's there. And when it's not there, you're going to have some downtime to kind of look at everything that happened. And a lot of times um, these investigations, especially when you're paying to go to go to the locations, which I don't do as much anymore you aren't getting what you need. Like you need to be there for like a week or two weeks, even to really kind of get an understanding of the ebb and flow of the location. So a lot of times you'll see just like a quick TikTok and the truth is nothing significant happened and it is what it is. And I've learned to casually approach it, which unfortunately has created dissonance when I'm investigating with other people who don't do it as often. Because for me, I'm like, oh, well, I'll just go to a haunted bar up the road and hang out and hear the stories or whatever. And even today, you know, um, I stopped to pick up a 
Victorian dress because I wanted to see what would happen if I started dressing Victorian while I'm trying to communicate. So I'm like, does this put me in their shoes better? Am I going to have good results? And the lady had a Victorian morning photo on the wall or a memorial piece. It's a lithograph. And I was like, would you sell that? And she's like, I've actually had it for 25 years. When I brought it home, the wind chimes started up at the front of the house and went all the way to the back of the house. And we decided that there's a ghost in the house, but it's not a nasty ghost. So she, I'm like, what are the chances that I go meet with some random person, go to buy this stuff, and there's a ghost story associated with the thing that I end up buying that I didn't plan to? So part of it is just like just living this every single day. Things happen. And I think people think that I make some of it up, but I'm really like, it, it just weird stuff happens to me. It just gravitates. Yeah. It just comes to you. It, it latches onto you. You know what to look for, though. You know what to look for in the areas, too. So that also makes you more susceptible to hearing other people's stories. Yeah, definitely. Something that I've noticed, uh, because I'm an apprentice as well, there is not necessarily like a stigma, but I've had multiple people tell me at my funeral home that most women in the industry are they're goth or they're like they're into the dark stuff they're into the morbid like gothy area and I haven't had any really had any problems with that um everyone that work that I work with they pretty much know like oh yeah she likes dark stuff and I just like kind of wanted to know if you had any problems with that when you were working in the industry with people like saying things about what you do in your free time and, and so, I'll, I'll, I'll add a little bit to that too, of just like, how do people in that, in the mortician industry uh, react to someone that has an interest in the paranormal? Yeah. Okay. I have a lot to say about this. It's been a weird journey for me. Um, so I left mortuary school with the intention of settling down and just leaving the internet altogether and not being on social media at all. I started a job and I actually, like, I looked like kind of how I do now. I had no makeup on and I would never really wear makeup, maybe mascara. I did not do anything that was unusual. I didn't have visible tattoos. I had no piercings. And I would curl my hair and look very plain every single day. And that's how I broke into the field. And my social media, I privated pretty much everything. And I did not make any of my pictures in cemeteries, even that though I think they're respectful, I didn't make any of that public. And my first job let me go because of the pandemic and they were worried about how things were going to play out and after that i felt so kind of like hurt that this this field was not going to take care of me and i needed to learn how to make my own that i started posting online so the social media stuff came afterwards and i worked at a corporate funeral home so i'm not intimately meeting with families and being the face of the funeral home i'm basically doing embalming in the back and also doing transfers of the decedents when I went to work, I, again, no makeup. I wore just regular clothes that I think came from like, I'm trying to think, Macy's. It was where I bought a lot of the funeral clothes and nobody suspected anything until, like I said, I got to the point where I couldn't keep up with it. And <laughs> one of my coworkers that worked at the crematory retort in the back was like, hey, I just saw you on the New York Post. And I was like, 
oops, because I kept it a secret. So everyone would talk around the funeral home how I was like secretly famous and nobody would like look up the stuff. I don't think I'm famous, but they would talk about how I lived a double life and stuff. Um, that being said, yeah, it, it's definitely something that they don't understand. And um, what's the term? Death hag is something that is used towards people that they think that are interested in it. However, I think there is a respectful balance. You keep your interests of the morbid and the, like the oddities, the goth aesthetic outside of work. You'll be respected in the field. I do think there are a lot of people getting in the field for the wrong reasons. I think there are people who want to shock people. And I'm not trying to turn my back on a community that I obviously came from because I was in like the punk community in Pittsburgh. I went to the goth nights and I do obviously look that way outside of that. But that also has found me just the same amount of disrespect in the paranormal. People have not taken me seriously because I like to do eye makeup or like look a certain way or like to have fun with the way I dress or match the way I dress to the location I'm at. And people have said, someone had me on their podcast and they said, oh, that's a goth girl. And I said, you know what? At, at some point I just said that I don't expect those people to understand me and they don't owe that to me. And all I can say that is someone is holding those reservations about someone based on their appearance, either in the paranormal or in the mortuary field, how are they supposed to empathize with the grief, the grieving? We have people from all walks of life. So there were people who would die from overdoses, people who were sex workers. Like there are so many things that we're exposed to. And I genuinely felt for every single one of these decedents I came into that came into my care but other people if you're retaining that kind of judgment towards your employees you're probably retaining that type of judgment towards the people in your care um so to kind of get out of that yeah you do have to curb your social media um when I worked at the funeral home I the only thing that they told me was that if I were doing the documentaries I couldn't say where I worked and they didn't want to associate it with it that being said one year out of the industry, I have given a lecture called Grief and Ghost Hunting and how I think it's harmful that we're doing what we're doing. It's a very Western view of death um, as far as like being interested in the paranormal and also being a mortician. The people who have acted as my preceptors, my mentors in the field have supported me. They have said publicly that they have the support people who literally sit on the funeral directors association, because what I'm doing allows them to see the empathy in the paranormal. Whereas I think not everyone would offer that same Avenue and that has helped me. And the fact that I'm out there donating resources to marginalized communities and telling stories that would otherwise go unheard. And it's not like some freak show, you know, where I'm like, look at this morbid story. Instead I'm like, hey, take a step back. This family kept their daughter in their home for over a year. They kept the corpse inside of their, you know, their home. Maybe we should think about how they were grieving rather than turning it into a morbid curiosity show. Mm -hmm. And that's helped me gain respect, but it, it's definitely not something that is easy to pursue if you have interests. Unfortunately, you'd think it would go hand in hand, but it's very conservative and it's very, very Western centric as far as the views go. I'm like, okay, if we have to look at it this way, we're dismissing so many other cultures. We're dismissing so many other people and their beliefs because we feel like when you die, you just die and we put you in the ground and you give the funeral director money and you pay for the casket and that's it. And instead it's like, 
you know, we have the Laotian Buddhist monks who put the decedent in the casket and they fashion a rope out of multiple white sheets. And the family actually pulls the decedent to the retort and pushes the button and says, I'm ready to let you go. And the Buddhist families will put coins and they'll go to the grocery store and they'll buy oranges and apples and put them with the person so that they could take them with them to the afterlife. So we have to acknowledge that by doing this, we're being dismissive. And at the same time, you know, I understand. And most of this comes from the intrusion of the legalities. Before we had funeral directors associations, it wouldn't be a big deal. And now you couldn't have a medium in a funeral home because that's going to complicate grief. Whereas Mm -hmm. there's plenty of grieving people who seek out mediumship and seek out communicating with their deceased loved one and they're fine it's not complicating their grief but it's just because there are laws in place and there's things that could get us sued they want to do that and they want to make sure that people aren't in the funeral home uh, unfortunately with a bias looking for the wrong reasons yeah i um i wouldn't identify myself as goth or like into any type of like subculture I guess but I am I I tend to follow more into the dark stuff and the people that I work with none of them really have like a problem with that and none of them really judge me for it but I have seen how other people are Mm -hmm. um there was this one girl which granted they shouldn't have done this because it was disrespectful but they went to the college that I go to and they had posted their graduation photos and it was of them standing in cemeteries and the college went around and told like told funeral directors and told other people in the industry and they weren't able to find a job after that and granted they shouldn't have been doing it in the way that they were but it's it's at the same time it's that's showing that like I don't know how to explain this it's showing like that's what they want like that's their that's their life they are dedicated to making this their life they want it to be their graduation pictures after all and like the the photos that I saw um a few of them they weren't standing on top of graves they weren't even really standing near graves they were like closer to like the gate where graves were and it's just interesting to me I'm struggling to understand why that would have been an issue. I took my pictures in a Mm. graveyard the day I graduated in my gown. And I I think pretty much everyone that was at my school liked those photos because it showed that this is the field I'm entering and it wasn't standing on anyone's graves or anything. So I don't know why they would have done that. I think that's actually pretty standard to take your graduation photos from mortuary school in the cemetery because it's the field you're about to work in. It, It is your literal field yeah that's true and i i get a lot of um people saying that i only want to do this because it's morbid i only want to do this because it's dark because i'm into the dark stuff i'm into the violent horror movies i'm into violent music i'm into like i collect animal bones from my uncle's farm stuff like that so people just always assume i'm doing it because it's it's gross it's it's morbid it's it's death and well at the end of the day somebody has to do it right it's not even just that because like yeah, someone has to do it, but that someone doing it has to value what they're doing. Right. That's what, yeah. I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So right. like, I, I haven't worked on very many people, but the few people that I have helped, I, I I take great pride in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, 
watching the families mourn and listening to the like women scream when they see their sons in caskets it hurts but i know that i'm helping them heal right well let me ask you i mean i'll ask you both this question both of you um is is some of these issues because this for has for so long been a profession that has been dominated by men and in particular also religious entities the religious too. aspect is very big or at least it is in the state of tennessee it's the religion is very very big here i don't think there's a single person in my funeral home who doesn't wear a cross every day right well but as far as Oh, ahead, sorry, I was going to say, go like, historically, the body washers that were involved in the field were women. And then as it moved away and became a profession, it became a profession for men. Um, I think they had this image of what an undertaker should look like. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, the old antiqu- antiquated terms of what a funeral director is. And now it's kind of moving back to the women are the caretakers and they're washing and they're doing things like, you know, reconstructions and things that require knowledge of cosmetics and not to make it divisive, because I think it's also moving towards a way um, where people who don't identify as either a woman or a man and are non-binary are entering the field. We're seeing a lot of that looking for gender identity, preservation and death. So, Uh, I think that happens. But yes, I do believe that men in the field are looking for reasons to dismiss the work of the women entering it. My thing is, if you collect bones, if you are interested in things that are macabre, to me, and the reason I'm into those things is because I find beauty in death. I think that I look at things on the other side of the coin. I don't see it as like a gruesome metal album cover like I think of it as like mm-hmm. oh how how beautiful and intricate this is and how fragile our life is so yeah. my interest in it you know like my friend died and I got into the mortuary field and I thought of everything with her in mind I pushed myself to get good grades and um, I took care of those people and everything else was secondary and I think that the field is constantly looking and sometimes I see women in the field getting dragged like oh you'll never get a job looking like that or being like that you're just a looky-loo morbid you know um there's obviously a very popular youtuber that people think that they get into the field because of her and i've heard people say that if anyone's inspired by her they won't give them an opportunity but what if you're inspired by the bad guys like even in the paranormal what if you're inspired by people who may not align with your beliefs now but it brought you there and you learned how to make your own impressions and come up with your own ideas it it is interesting how it works and i don't know what the future of the field is i know a lot of really successful amazing women in the field who are interested in cemeteries and things like that and they photograph them and they're still respectful and they still care my my one coworker she you know she was a practicing witch and she had coffins and stuff in her home that she liked or, you know, and she was interested in the same stuff that I was not when she went to work, she was always professional, but I just think that people just need to abandon their ideas of judging people for what they look like. Like this is 2023. Yeah. Like I'm not gonna, I I do pretty intense goth makeup a lot and I'm not going to show up to work wearing all of that one. It's not necessarily professional. It's a little too extravagant. And I mean, I let, like my aesthetic show a bit like I'll wear like dangly like 
earrings with like intricate crosses on them or I'll like maybe wear a beaded like some beads or something but I don't let it like I I don't show up like how I look now like not really intense eyeliner my gauge is showing right like I'm that's like too much I have to be as respectful as possible while also being comfortable yeah Mm -hmm. and the thing with the bones too um I it's it's not one of those things where I'm just like oh my gosh bones they're mine no like uh, all of the bones that I have I couldn't tell you from every single animal but I know the story behind them which I I enjoy a lot like the horse ribs I know what happened to them I know what happened to every bone in my collection I know the story behind why they're there yeah definitely and I I just think that people don't understand it because they think that I think it's just kind of rhetoric too that we were fed by growing up in the generation that experienced like the Columbine. So they're like, oh yeah, the goth kids are the reason that this horrible thing happened. And um, people who think that serial killers, you know, we're we're taught that serial killers are, you know, you can notice them because if a kid harms an animal when they're little, so people see stuff like that and they're like, oh, this is an indicator that this person is a serial killer. They're acting upon these innate desires and it's it's nothing like that. And I don't know, because like I said, some of the best morticians that are out there have uh, an interest in other things. And it makes sense to me because, um, you know, they would have pride. I think they would have pride in their work because it's a passion of theirs. But yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing of just, you know, since I've known her and her interest in this, um, you know, unfortunately I was at a funeral a couple of years ago and, you know, I'm, I'm just watching the people do their job. And, and a lot of the people, most of the people there were older men. And my thought to myself was like, well, it's good that there are people like Navea and yourself that, are going into this because who's really going to replace these guys? Cause a lot of them were old and, and they're, you know, they're going to be gone. Something you know, maybe 10 years me to my core is that yeah. I have watched so many men do makeup and none of them use the right brushes. It infuriates <laughs> me so much. Like it looks good, but imagine how much better it would be if you use the eyebrow, the eyeshadow brush for eyeshadow. Yeah. If you use the foundation brush for foundation, not contour all over the face. Yeah. Ew, are the like cakey old brushes? Like, I don't yes. mean to say this. Like, if anyone is listening to this and grieving, I almost feel bad, but it's like they, they just don't have that attention. And and I'm not saying no, men, they don't. I'm saying people, it, it's actually just people who've been in the field for a long time and they're doing things that way. And they're just like, slop this on. And, and it's just like cakey or watching them put like that powder over like the wet cream makeup mm-hmm. and. And, and it's just interesting, but, um, and, and not most, working in layers. Sorry. Yeah. But, no. yeah. Most of the time their work looks really good too. Like my directors, their work looks amazing, but I could not tell you how many times I've cleaned those brushes. I could not tell you how many sponges I've bought with my own money. And yeah. the first time I looked at my funeral director and I was like, Hey, do you think I could take a couple hours? Not, oh, not one hour, a couple hours and clean the makeup brushes at the back and she was like yeah they haven't been cleaned since we bought them and i was like oh when did you buy them she was like when the funeral home opened wow over 20 years uh, ago wow so and they, they're not even makeup brushes they're paint brushes with mm-hmm. caked on makeup yeah right it's, it's yeah it seems to me i mean just like things that you don't know about in 
you know, I know nothing about the funeral home industry, I talk but about it for hours. But it seems, but it seems like you know that it is something that seems to be changing itself. I before we stop, Becky, Ann, I noticed all those Ouija boards back there. Yeah, I wanted to say something too. Uh, is there a story behind each one of those? <laughs> um, I don't know why I started collecting. I just got this notion one day in like 2013 that I was going to start collecting Ouija boards. And some of them, like my father has found some of them and my mom has found some of them for me, but there's no, like, they're not haunted. They don't have any, well, they don't have any stories associated with them. There are a lot of them came from eBay and places like that. The one though, that is the, the oldest, one of the oldest ones that I had from 1890, my mom drove to a bar and met this guy to pick it up. And then he took her to the house it came from. She ended up buying the stained glass windows from the wall. But um, as far as that happens, um, yeah, there's not really anything exciting. I just collect them. I don't know. I think I'm interested in the lore and the fact. Um, I, I don't know. It's just exciting to me to harbor something that has so much fascination and curiosity behind it and even the stigma. Right. Uh, but it doesn't really mm -hmm. affect my life in any way. So I have ones that are, you know, over 100 years old. I'm very interested in talking boards and their history. I don't know why the Ouija board got the reputation that it did, but um, I have no issues in my house. Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That's basically my thought on it. Hollywood really just kind of yeah. made them seem like they're an evil kind of thing. They're, they're really not. They're just a tool. They are. That's all right. they are. I could take, I could take a piece of paper and the energy we put mm -hmm. into it and then it'll be cursed or have a demon attached to it or, or something like that. It's like people saying, and it was, it's called an EMF reader, like an EMF, an EMF reader is evil. Dowsing rods are evil. <laughs> right. All of right, it's evil. Right. It's just a tool. It's yeah. a vessel used for communication. That's all it is. That's true. Yep. Well, Becky Ann, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been uh this has been great really talking to you, get to know you a little bit. Um, where can people find you? So I'm on TikTok and Instagram as my bloody Galentine. And I have a few things that I've been announcing slowly that are coming out like full length investigations um, that will be streaming in, in the near future. So I think one of them is released on the 25th of this month. So as long as you follow me on those social media outlets, that's where I update most of the things. Okay. Excellent. Alrighty. Excellent. And uh, uh, we're going to close out this sh show, so stay on the line with us uh, while we do that. Um, it's Conspiranormal, Conspiranormal.com, Conspiranormal YouTube channel. We have our Patreon. You guys should know about that by now, but it is www.patreon.com slash Conspiranormal. And we have coming up on April 21st, Travis Watson giving a presentation Hopefully going to be getting him in soon to do a short bonus episode about that. And that is for the Mystic Crew on our Patreon and $10 if you want to join in on the fun if you're not part of the Patreon. And also associated in our Strange Realities family, which we do have the Strange Realities Conference coming up November 3rd through the 5th. But Nevaeh, tell people where they can find your channel. Um, you can find me on YouTube. It's Nevaeh's Nightmare. Um, it's heaven backwards, as Adam likes to say. Yes, because it's the easiest way to spell your name. Trust uh, me. Still spell it wrong. It's a crazy thing. <laughs> Anyways, um, it's heaven backwards, <laughs> Nevaeh's Nightmare. I'm also on TikTok as Nevs.nightmare. It's just my name shortened. 
Um, Instagram is Morning Drizzle, which I'm thinking about changing to Nevaeh's Nightmare. We'll see. I've had it as that for a couple of years. Okay. But I'm thinking about it. All right. Um, yeah, you should watch my YouTube channel, please. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I second that. And give a yeah. subscription to her YouTube yeah, you channel. Yeah, you should subscribe because that will help Comment. out the Greater Strange Realities. Watch family. my most recent video. Like it, share it. All right, yeah, I think <laughs> Beast of Gavidon. I think is what we did. Yes, yes, Beast of Gavidon. All right. All right, guys. Uh, Join. We will be taking a two week break. Uh, Sergio will be back, but uh, we'll have we've got some great guests to round up out April and we will talk to you soon on Conspiranormal. Sergio, let's take him my place. (laughs) 